Scripture, sermon text, is from the Gospel of Mark, a familiar story. Um, I'm just going to read verses 1 through 12, but I just wanted you to see the story that comes after it. So when uh, Jesus had returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytics, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Arise, take up your your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. The word of the Lord. Lord, we pray um, that you meet us this morning in your word and in the sermon by your spirit, that you instruct our hearts in the truth of baptism and the truth of gospel belonging. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Recent um, development in the study of animals, of mammals in particular, has been um, a deepening awareness of how social and family-oriented mammals are. Uh, Take the wolf as an example. There are two images of wolves that tend to shape our, our thinking about how wolves behave. One is the image of the lone wolf, right? And the other one is pack of wolves. Like, neither of these are good images, right? Uh, But, um, so the lone wolf, right? The lone wolf is an animal that lives in isolation from the pack. Um, And then you have a pack of wolves, right? And we generally think of a pack of wolves as like kind of a random assortment of wolves that gather together uh, in order to to, uh, have more power to, you know, wreak havoc or... um, survive and hunt. But what's true is fact is that neither of these images is actually a fair representation of the actual lives of wolves uh, in the wild. There's no such thing as a lone wolf. You'll never find a lone wolf in the wild, not voluntarily. Wolves are social creatures um, and a wolf pack. Um, Wolves are pack animals, but don't think of pack as just sort of a vicious gang of of wolf thugs. Uh, A wolf pack is actually a family almost always, as mother, father, children, and sometimes uh, an aunt or uncle that just gets adopted in, right? But wolf packs are almost always families. Um, So what scientists are discovering about mammals, and this isn't just wolves, but elephants and, um, you know, porpoises, is that they all have really elaborate kin structures, right? Kin structure, kin is like family, right? Family structures that organize their lives and that the very survival of their species 
uh, depends upon certain kinds of social learning that they get from within those family kin structures. And so when those kin structures are disrupted, or an animal is forcibly removed from those, those, stru those structures of belonging and relocated to captivity, they be behave in very different ways than they do in the wild. And so one of the reasons that's given now for this image of the lone wolf um, is that uh, the reason why we think of the lone wolf as a thing that wolves actually do is that, you know, wolves were actually only studied in captivity. I mean, they're very elusive animals to, to find in the wild. Um, Actually, the lone wolf is just a phenomenon of a wolf in captivity, um, separated from his natural environment and kin structures, and behaves very differently. And so animals in captivity exhibit more isolation and aggression, or wolves at least, anxiety, fights amongst themselves. These are not behaviors that you normally observe in the wild, right? Now, humans aren't exactly like wolves. We're not wolves. But we're similar to wolves in that we're social creatures. We're social creatures that need to belong within kinship structures and family for our survival. You could say that family and community is our natural habitat. Um, and so when we're separated from family, when we're separated from healthy uh, structures of belonging and kinship, um, it manifests in all kinds of, of pathologies uh, that you see like wolves in, in captivity. There's, Social anxiety, aggression, erratic behavior, violence, aggression, self-destructiveness. But the, dig, the big difference, though, between wolves and humans is that a wolf never voluntarily, uh, you know, embraces to, you know, separation from, from its kin. Um, but as humans, we often make deliberate choices that separate us from structures of belonging. Um, in our life. And in fact, a lot of our cultural learning today as modern people is that we're taught to think about um, becoming our full and true selves as part of that is breaking away from imposed structures of belonging in our lives, from family or community or church. And we actually embrace a kind of lone wolf thinking about ourselves. But to be a lone wolf is no more possible for us as it is for wolves. Belonging. Belonging is one of the most fundamental needs of every human being. We are social creatures. We need to exist within thick webs of relationships that are overlapping and interlocking if we're to flourish. And this isn't just something when you're a child you need this. You need this throughout your entire life. To belong is to have um, a sense, a strong sense of affiliation with a group that sees you for who you are and, and recognizes you that as a member, as somebody who is valued and as cherished and as known, um, we need people. We need people to cherish us, to know us. I mean, this is what it means to love, right? To love is to belong. It's to belong. Um, ordinarily, the most basic context for belonging is the family, right? The natural family, the extended family, but I mean, we all know that <laughs> um, less and less uh, people are born into really strong contexts like this. And nevertheless, belonging is still a non-negotiable need for us. It's a necessity at every level. For it's in belonging that we develop a sense of stable identity. It's in belonging that we have a sense of security and protection. It's in belonging that we learn to relate to one another um, in healthy ways. We learn how to love 
and be loved. And so it's the worst kind of pain in life. The worst kind of pain in life is a kind of social exclusion or um, isolation from belonging or when, when those structures of belonging and community in our life are torn apart, whether through divorce or, or abandonment or whatever it might be. When those things fail, um, it has this kind of cascading effect in our lives, and we become like, like the wolves in captivity who, who um, have all kinds of, you know, things that happen to us. You know, so much of the violence that we see every day in this city um, and that we see across America, um, especially this week, is rooted in various forms of breakdown of belonging and kinship, where those things, when you look at the stories, you see there's, there's little to nothing there. I mean, these are truths I think we mostly know. Most of us know this. Most people here know that you, you need to belong and you want to belong. But actually belonging is, is actually pretty hard to do. <laughs> As a pastor, I've discovered this. It's not very easy for people to belong. And we're always haunted by this sense of loneliness or the sense that we just don't fit in. Um, and there's so many forces in the modern world that are organized that kind of push against us from truly and deeply belonging. And part of it is just even how we think about ourselves. And so we, we think about ourselves. Um, we're like wolves in captivity, and so we become loners, you know, um, and embrace that. Or, or we make dangerous, we, 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 we form dangerous forms of belonging. That's what a pack of wolves is, in, a, in the negative sense. That's what identity politics is. It's, a, it's like a pack of wolves in which we feel like we have to belong to protect ourselves. Um, that's where we're at as, as, a, as a culture. So what does baptism have to do with any of this? Baptism is about belonging. Baptism is a sacrament of belonging. Baptism addresses that deepest and most fundamental need of belonging at its root, at the deepest part of who we are. Uh, another way to think of it is, that, is that baptism is the grace of belonging. And that's what I, I want to talk with you this morning about. Gra baptism is the grace of belonging. Uh, Jesus' own baptism here, I think, is a model for us. Recall the story where Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan River. As he comes out from the water, he hears the voice of the Father from heaven. This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then the Spirit descends upon him like a dove. In baptism, God declares that Jesus is his son. He is his son, and God is his father. He belongs. And this belonging is accompanied with this gift of the very presence of God in the Spirit. And so what you see in the life of Jesus is that baptism forms this foundational reality uh, that runs through all, all of Jesus' life and ministry. Baptism is what allows him to survive the temptations in the wilderness. Baptism is what empowers his ministry Baptism is what allows him to face the cross. This deep sense of spiritual belonging anchors Jesus' whole life in ministry. And the same for us as God's children, right? In baptism, we are given the grace to belong in the world, not as lone wolves, <laughs> not as cosmic orphans, not as restless wanderers. No, we're children.
We're children. We're sons and daughters of the Father. <clears throat> and so, when we baptize a child or an adult here at church, what we're saying is this. We're saying, you belong. You belong. You belong to God. He's your father. You're his son or his daughter. And because you belong to God, you belong to us. You belong to us as the people of God. <clears throat> there, <laughs> there's so much brokenness in this world around belonging. <clears throat> and this morning what I want to do is I want to just give you some, an encouraging vision of belonging that's rooted in this grace of baptism. And I want to reflect on the story of the paralytic. Um, the story of the paralytic, as you, you know, know, is not explicitly about baptism, but it illustrates, I think, some really fundamental truths about the grace of baptism and belonging, and how baptism creates belonging and healing in our life. And so the first thing I want to draw your attention to in this story is this. This is the first truth, is that grace addresses the disabilities in our life that become barriers for belonging. Grace addresses the disabilities in our life that become barriers to belonging. Um, just as we see in the Gospels, and so it is true in this congregation, there are many, uh, many of us have afflictions, we have disabilities, we have things that keep us from, from full belonging, that make it difficult for us to enter in and in the heart of this story is you have this man who was a paralytic, and we don't know exactly what his condition was medically, but he was un unable to walk, and he had to be carried around on a mat. Um, he had a disability. And because of that disability, unlike other able-bodied persons, he was unable to enter into Jesus' house through the front door. It was standing room only. And this is not just an isolated story in the Gospels. Uh, you know, when you, there's this full, stories full of examples of people who experience various forms of social isolation or exclusion because they have certain illnesses or disabilities or afflictions. Just prior to the story here, we have the story of the leper, a man who was a leper. And leprosy in the ancient world is a skin disease and uh, it required basically lifelong quarantine. <laughs> Some of you have been in quarantine for COVID for like five or seven days or however long, and it gets lonely. Imagine that quarantine is your entire life. That's the case for the leper, right? You weren't supposed to touch lepers. They were untouchable. What Jesus does is he touches him, and he cleanses him, and he says, go to the temple and present yourself to the priest. Get back. You belong. Um, later on in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 4, we have the story of the Gerasene demoniac. He is a man that's filled with demons, and he's so dangerous to himself and to others that they've basically, um, you know, the ancient version of an insane asylum, they've chained him up outside the, rip, the city so he doesn't uh, harm others or himself. And Jesus goes to this man into his presence, he casts out the demon, and it says the man sat in front of Jesus, you know, at peace and in his sane mind. And the man wants to stay with Jesus on his boat, and Jesus says, no, I want you to go back to your friends and your family, and I want you to tell them what God has done. Jesus introduces him back into community. Or uh, just another chapter um, forward, there's the story of the woman with the bleeding. She's been bleeding 12 years, and um, if you're bleeding in that time as a woman, you, had to, you were unclean, and you had to be separated. Jesus is in a big crowd of people, and she just thinks, if only I could grab the, the hem of his garment, I know that I can be healed. And she does it, plowing her way through a crowd, no doubt touching all kinds of people, Jesus included, and she's healed. 
And Jesus knows that power's gone out of him, and he's like, what happened? And he starts looking for her, and she cowers, thinking he's going to scold her, because she's done, uh, she's unclean. She shouldn't be in the mix. And what Jesus says to her is this, daughter, daughter, your faith has made you whole. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. See, this is the pattern of Jesus' healing ministry. Um, he addresses the various afflictions and disabilities that become barriers that keep us from belonging. His ministry of healing is about restoring lost sons and daughters to places of belonging. Now, the first word that Jesus speaks to this paralytic man is a declaration of his belonging. Look at it. He's, Jesus, he calls him son. Son, your sins are forgiven. Actually, the Greek word isn't son. Actually, the Greek word is techna, which is child. Um, it's, he says child, which seems odd. He's a man. He doesn't know him. He calls him child. And that word child um, in the Greek is actually a, uh, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a term of endearment, of intimacy, of familial belonging. Jesus says, you belong. Your disability is no longer an impediment to your belonging. And it's the same for us. When we come into the presence of Jesus, when we can hear his voice personally, when we, we are within reach of him, when he can touch us, there's a grace of belonging that overcomes the disabilities, the afflictions, the things that keep us from him and from one another. <clears throat> so healing in our life comes through being in the presence of Jesus. Healing comes through being in the presence of Jesus. It doesn't always mean that he takes our affliction or disability away completely, but what it does mean is that affliction or that disability is no longer a barrier, no longer a barrier for belonging to God and to his people. Now, how does this happen? How does this happen? How is it that we come into contact with Jesus? How is it that we hear his voice and feel his touch? It's through the church, which is his body. Now, I know this is a really hard sell today, especially this past week. Um, all the scandals, all the abuse within many churches today, it's really hard for us to accept the fact that we have to go through the church to really get the real Jesus. Um, and yet the failure of the church to be the church is not an argument against the necessity of the church in our lives. And I always, when I talk to people about the church that are deeply wounded or hurt or disillusioned by the church, I often say, listen, just because you have a bad dad or a bad mom doesn't mean you give up altogether on the fact that children need moms and dads. You happen to have a bad one. The church sometimes fails. It's bad, sometimes evil. But that doesn't mean that we still don't need the church because that's what God gave us. The church is called to be the healing presence of God in the world, a healing presence of belonging. The church mediates to us our sense that we're children. Like, you can tell yourself all you want that I'm loved, I'm beloved daughter or son, but if you don't have Christians in a church around you to say, no, this is true, it will never take root because you need embodiment. You need an embodied community to tell you this is true. That's why God gives the church, which is why it's so devastating and destructive when the church, instead of loving and protecting and nurturing God's children, exploits and abuses them. 
And friends, be sure of this, God's judgment on such persons and such churches will be severe. When the church is being the church, when the church is listening to the voice of the bridegroom, she is a place of belonging, a place of nurture, a place of healing. Now, this story is a beautiful picture of a faithful church. And the church is not Jesus' house. That's a building. The church is the friends. It's the four friends carrying the paralyzed man to Jesus. Remember this scene, right? It's standing room only. Nobody can even get in the front door hardly. And what these four men do is they, they open up the roof and they lower their friend down. And this is what it means to be the church, right? We find creative ways unconventional ways to get people in Jesus' presence. See, the front, there's the front door of the church, and most people can enter the front door, and they can come into Jesus' presence. But not all people can walk through the front door. <laughs> not everybody can come to church and come to worship or join a community group and do the normal ways and have a sense of belonging. Some people, they need, like, they need to go through a side door, or they need an underground tunnel, or they need to come through the roof right? And part of being the church, like these friends, is finding ways to get people into the presence of Jesus, and not assuming that everybody can enter in the front door. And there is a grace that is available to us. Um, There's a grace that is available to us simply by being and belonging within the community of faith. And this is so important. Um, Simply by being, by being here, by being present, being in the community, there's grace. There's grace that carries you. And, and that's, the, I think, what you see here um, with the example of these men is that these four friends, they carry this man to Jesus when he couldn't get himself there. Right? He carries, he car- they carried this man to Jesus when he couldn't get himself to Jesus. And what's interesting here is that when Jesus, you know, he sees the scene that's going on, you can imagine the, the man being lowered down, And it says, and Jesus saw their faith. And he said to the man, son, your sins are forgiven. So here you have Jesus, he is responding. Now we don't, we shouldn't presume that the man had no faith. I mean, this text doesn't exclude that he had faith, but for sure that it was kind of a weakened faith. He couldn't get himself to Jesus. But Jesus recognizes the faith of these other, these friends. And he acts on behalf of the man and said, your sins are forgiven. And I think this is a beautiful picture of of baptism and what we do when we bring our children forward for baptism. Because as parents, what we're doing is we're, we're carrying our, our children to Jesus to receive the words of belonging and forgiveness and healing. Um, and our faith, it doesn't displace their faith. It doesn't displace their faith, but it carries them along until they can get up and walk, right? That's what baptism of children means. It's, you know, we, our children are carried along by our faith for a time until they develop strength of their own faith, and they can stand up, and they can respond to Jesus' words, and they can walk. And again, as modern people, we have such an individualistic understanding towards faith. We, we think about faith as kind of this solitary thing between me and God, and until my child has that, you know, strong enough. But reality is, this friend, grace and faith is always communal. It's never just individual. It's always communal. It's, it's never, it's always personal, It's always personal, but it's never individualistic. The grace of baptism comes to us through the course of our whole lives. It's it's sort of like a slow-release vitamin pill, right? 
It's like this thing that just, it just keeps releasing grace to us over time and carries us to Jesus when we're weak. Now, I've, um, I've had very personal experiences of the church carrying me to Jesus when I couldn't get myself to him. Numerous times in life, but the one that strikes me most is when I was in college, I had a crisis of faith. I, I had wanted to go into the ministry and was very dedicated to church, and I had this crisis of faith, which really caused me to question everything and, and really come to a point at which I, I honestly did not think I could continue being, not just going into ministry, but just being a Christian. Like, I just, I was like, I'm done. I can't do it. Um, but I, it's like, I couldn't really. And so I, I left college. I went home. I didn't separate myself from the church community because those were the majority of my friends were the church community. But I just existed uh, with that community. And what I realized now years later, as I look back, is that the faith, the prayers, the love of that community of faith carried me into the presence of Jesus. <clears throat> I wasn't able to carry myself, um, but they kept carrying me into Jesus' presence. And eventually, uh, I was able to, to respond to Jesus' voice and get up and walk. <clears throat> I don't know why I'm so emotional this morning. <laughs> Forgive me. <clears throat> the baptismal grace, um, baptismal grace is distributed to us through the community of faith. Now, a very uh, big part of my faith, per my paralysis, if you will, was my own sin. It wasn't just that bad things had happened that were outside of my control, but I had put myself on that mat in many ways. I had put myself on that mat. And part of my healing and recovery um, had to do with hearing and receiving Jesus' words of forgiveness. And, and this is the last important truth about the grace of belonging through baptism. Now, we should not presume that the man, um, the paralytic man, was paralyzed because of his sin. That the story does not make that connection to us. And I think it's really important for us to recognize that many of us, many of you, have disabilities and afflictions that are not connected with anything you did wrong. <laughs> you didn't do anything wrong in particular. But you, we all live in a fallen and a broken world under the curse, and sometimes we have things that afflict us. Nevertheless, even those with disabilities in which their disability is no fault of their own, you're still a sinner. <laughs> We're all sinners, right? Sometimes our sins aren't necessarily connected to what's wrong in our life, but know this, we're all sinners, and we can react to the different afflictions in very sinful ways in our life. And um, when, you, when you look at the four friends, and they're bringing this paralyzed man to Jesus, um, what do you think they're expecting him to do? Heal him, right? But what Jesus does what, what does Jesus do instead? He doesn't heal him. Not immediately. He offers him belonging and forgiveness. Now, do you think they brought him there for that? I probably don't. I don't think so. I think they brought him there because, like, we know this guy heals people. we got to get him in Jesus' presence. And what Jesus does here is he completely reframes their expectations and the problem. 
he actually identifies what this man's greatest need is. And his greatest need is for God's forgiveness, right? His greatest need is for grace. And that's what Jesus gives him. And so it's only after forgiving the man of his sins that he then heals him. Now, there's all kinds of different orders that Jesus has used, and he doesn't always offer forgiveness when he heals. But I think this story is really instructive because it tells us this, is that my deepest affliction, my deepest wound, my deepest disability is my sin. <laughs> I'm a sinner. And until this wound, until this sickness is addressed, all the other ones are just window dressing. It won't be addressed at the root. There is no true and lasting healing in our life without the experience of God's forgiveness. To go through life without forgiveness, without God's forgiveness, is to go through life permanently broken. <laughs> permanently broken. You might not know it, but you're permanently broken. Our greatest affliction, our greatest disability is that we are sinners. I mean, that's, that's, <clears throat> that's one of the great truths of baptismal belonging is that in order to belong, you have to recognize that you're sick. <laughs> in order to belong, you have to recognize that you are wounded. There's no belonging that doesn't involve that. And that's what baptism teaches us, that rec recognizing that weakness, our weakness as persons, is a condition for belonging. And you think of the story that comes right after this where Jesus is disputing with the Pharisees. You know, he eats with sinners and tax collectors. He says, you know, did I, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. You know, Jesus is saying this. He's like, I'm, a, I'm not a savior for healthy people. There's actually no such thing as a healthy person. I mean, that's part of the assumption here. But I'm not a savior for healthy persons. I'm not a savior for powerful and for talented and for well-to-do and able-bodied people. I'm a savior for sick, disabled, broken people. You can only belong to me and to the Father if you recognize this. Belonging in our world is, uh, I think, increasingly difficult. I don't think it's always been as difficult as it is today. And that's in part because more and more we live in what's called a... Uh, a meritocracy or a culture that is oriented towards belonging around achievement, accomplishment, um, merit. I belong because I have these natural gifts, right? I belong uh, because I have value. I belong because I'm hardworking, I'm intelligent, I'm good looking. I belong because I have money. I belong because I'm healthy and normal. I belong because I'm very accomplished in my career. I belong because I'm worthy. The problem is that even for the most accomplished person, the most able-bodied, gifted, they live with this gnawing sense that it's still not enough. <laughs> still not enough. That they're still not good enough. They have to keep achieving and they have to keep performing in order to keep belonging. That's the logic of our culture, perform to belong. But it's only in the grace of baptism that we are able to get at this deep spiritual deficiency in our hearts around belonging. Because only in baptism do we have the assurance of the promise of forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins, my friends, means that my belonging is not 
an accomplishment. My belonging is not uh, me having forged my own identity. My belonging is not something I have to do to earn a place at the table. Forgiveness means that I belong even when I don't feel worthy. That I belong even when I am not worthy. When I've done things to make myself not worthy of belonging. Forgiveness means that my identity is not my personal achievement, but it's a gift. It's conferred upon me. You don't take to yourself the title son or daughter. It's given to you. It's given to you by your father, by your mother. It's given to you by God the Father. And with that title, and with that name, he tells us that we're beloved sons, beloved daughters, in whom he is well pleased. This has to be the foundational, foundational reality and relationship all of our lives. It has to be the basis of all other belongings. You see that? The basis of your belonging, the basis of my belonging is that I am a son and my daughter whose sins are forgiven, and I know that I'm not my own, but I belong body and soul to my faithful Savior. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. And because of that, I can get up off my mat and I can walk in freedom. Amen. Lord, we